evening and is, is so true in AA. We found not only have we shared the disease of alcoholism and the beauty of the recovery through AA, but we found some personal things that we also share. And I think very much you're going to enjoy listening to Joanne F. Thank you very much. My name is Joanne, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. And first of all, I'd like to say I'm very happy to be here in Charleston, West Virginia. It is beautiful, beautiful country. We, we drove down from Baltimore, Maryland, and it certainly is God's country. Up in Baltimore, we see all kinds of cars with all kinds of stickers about wild, wonderful West Virginia and all that, and it is wild and wonderful, so we're glad to be here. And as I said, I'm Joanne, and I'm an alcoholic. And I am sober today through the grace of God as I understand Him, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the people in this program who took me by the hand when I came through the doors of AA, hopeless, hopeless drunk, helpless. And the people took me by the hand, and as I heard a gal say, they loved me until I could learn to love myself because I didn't love myself when I got to this program. I hated myself. I hated what I had become. I hated what I had done to my family, to my friends, to myself. I didn't start out that way, though. I didn't start out that way. At the end, alcohol had me by the throat, and I was begging for mercy. But it wasn't that way at the beginning. I was born and raised in a little town. I hate to say this, there's a lady here who's so thrilled somebody's here from Baltimore, and I told her I, was, I came from Ohio, and she said, oh, no. <laughs> I was born and raised in a little town called Connie at Ohio, up on Lake Erie, right between Cleveland and Erie, PA. Small town. Couldn't wait to get out of there. My father was a railroad engineer on the Nickel Plate Railroad. I came from a very Irish Catholic family. My mother was also Irish. In fact, my mother came from a very religious family. My mother had two brothers who were priests and a sister who was a nun. And my father came from a family of drunks. I don't know how those two ever got together, and I never communicated with them enough to find out. But I kind of, for a long while in my life, was kind of a combination. I was kind of a religious drunk for quite a while in my life. And that's kind of the worst kind, I think. But I was born and raised in that town and with that family, and that was a, it was an alcoholic family. My father was an alcoholic who never stopped drinking. Never, never got through the denial. Never stopped drinking, and I raised in that, that family. can remember very well the fights and the crying. And I remember being scared most of the time. I remember sitting in front of the bars with my brother and sister in the car, and we'd play games waiting for my father and mother to come out. And just what it is, if any of you here were raised in an alcoholic family, you know what it is. And for you alcoholics, you know what it was for the kids. And I liked my father, and I hated him. I liked him when he was uh, had something to drink because he was happy. I hated him when he was drunk. I didn't like him too much when he was sober because he was so crabby. But you know, I I, uh, I think I until I got to AA, I, I tried to get that man to accept me or, or approve of me or like me. And to the day he died and was buried, I was still looking for that and still drunk. And I found out after I came into AA and got sober that I didn't need it. Funny, isn't it, what we find out when we get here? Anyway, that's the way I was raised in an alcoholic family, and at 15 years old, living that way, watching that drunkenness and the fights and the screams and the whole thing, and my mother crying and on and on and on, that never stopped Joanne from picking up a drink, because I was different. I wasn't going to be like him. And at 15 years old, a bunch of girls and I conned a, a guy who just come back from the Second World War into getting us a, a jug of Dago red wine. And if anybody here ever got drunk on Dago red wine, you never forget it, do you? Because I got drunk and I got sick, and I swore I'd never drink wine again. You know, I never did till the end. 
But I went home, threw up all over the back porch steps, and went to bed. And my father, who was the kind of a drunk that used to say, don't do what I do, you do what I say, uh, saw that and wanted to know who did that. And my older sister, who was old enough to drink, took the blame. And you better believe I let her. And I kind of started from that point on letting everybody take the blame for Joanne or blaming everybody for everything that happened in my life. At 15 and a half, I was going with older kids then, kids that were drinking. And I was in a little dance pavilion down on the lake where we all used to sit around. And a young man came in who was about 20 years old, 21, just got out of the service, out of the Navy, and he was drunk. And I fell madly in love with him. I said, that's the guy for me. And I based my life and a marriage and a family and everything on booze. And it took me a long time in sobriety to look back and see how important alcohol was to Joanne. Because from the very beginning, alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. Took away all that fear, made me feel like I fit. Even when I didn't fit, I thought I fit. And I made myself fit if I was drinking. And it gave me courage, and later on it helped me sleep, and later on it did this, and it always did something for me. And I was always willing to pay the prices, and I paid some prices. Now, in the beginning, alcohol wasn't the problem. Alcohol was the answer. Everything else was the problem. And alcohol was the answer for me. That boy and I went together, drank together, fought, fought, fought. And then we ran away and got married. <laughs> kind of like an alcoholic's love story. Seventeen years old, I ran away from that home. I couldn't wait to get away from there and do my own thing. I was the third of four children to run away from that family, to, to run away from that home. We went to a town called Troy, New York, and there we lived for four years. In the first two years of our marriage, my husband and I worked all week and drank all weekend. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved the bars. I loved music. I loved the jitterbug around. And life was going to be a ball. And we had nothing. We had nothing. We had an old beat-up mercury. And we lived in a one-room furnished room. That's all we had. Spent all our money on alcohol. Tour around Troy. Tour around the whole vicinity drinking. And that's the way I thought life was going to be. You know, I noticed, I don't know about here in West Virginia, but in Baltimore, we have a lot of young people coming into the program, and I'm so happy to see it, because I could have used this program then. I could have used it then. You know, I got to this program, and I said I had never been in jail. I'd never been in the police station. Yes, I had. I had forgotten. I had forgotten that my husband and I got in a fight when we were drunk and got th thrown out of our little apartment. I had forgotten that. I had forgotten that uh, we had a fight on the street coming out of a bar, and the police came. I was 18 years old. See, I'd forgotten that. And I was always willing to pay those prices. Always willing to pay them. By the time I was 20 years old, after we were married a couple of years, my family started coming along, and that happens even to alcoholics. And in the next 14 years, I had eight children. Now that put quite a crimp in my social life. <laughs> Joanne couldn't go to bars. Joanne couldn't get out. You can't pay a babysitter to watch eight children, believe me. <laughs> Nobody. You can't pay them to watch five, so my social life was done. For the first ten years that I had my first six children between age 20 and 30, my alcoholism was still there and still going and still progressing. And those are the years I call my controlled drinking, which means sometimes I couldn't drink. Sometimes I couldn't drink. I'd have to wait till Friday night. Then my sister and I, who also happens to be an alcoholic, <coughs> would go out grocery shopping. We'd hustle around, get the groceries, throw them in the back seat of the car, and hustle down to Romus and have a few. And I looked forward to that. That was my big night out. I always looked forward to drinking. That was my reward. That was my life. That was my fun. That was my everything. And then in those years, because I couldn't get out, my husband was still drinking. He was going out and stopping at bars. I found out I could drink at home. It was a great discovery for me. I didn't have to go to bars. 
I didn't have to wait till Friday night. I found out I didn't have to wait till Saturday night. I could drink on Monday if I needed to, and I usually did. These were the years that I found out that that the stuff that made me sick would get me well when I'd get up and not feel too good. I remembered my father saying, you take a bite of the hair of the dog that bit you. It's funny how we remember those kind of things, isn't it? I never remembered any good advice. But I remembered that, and that was true. So by the time I had my eighth child, 1965, I was a daily drinker. I'd gone through whiskey, a few years of gin, a few years of vodka, and then I was on beer. Because my husband told me, you can't drink that hard stuff, you get too crazy. And I did. I was getting crazier and crazier. My illness was getting worse and worse. And in those years, even when I wasn't drinking, my attitudes were getting worse and worse. I was very resentful about what was happening to me. I was blaming other people for what was happening to me. It was their fault. They were responsible for the way I felt. I was getting into a lot of self-pity. Poor me. Why me? How about my sister in Alexandria doesn't have any kids? How come I've got eight? I'm still wondering about that one. And so is she. But this is the way I was getting. I was getting very fearful. I was always scared. Even as a kid, I remember being scared. I'd act real cool on the outside like I knew it. And I didn't. But I didn't want you to know I didn't know. And I was scared. And raising those children and drinking and drinking and my alcoholism getting worse and worse, I got so that I was so afraid something was going to happen to those children and it would be my fault. And it would be my fault. And I lived in constant fear. And my drinking got worse. And a lot of my fear came out in anger and resentments. And the fights were getting worse. And in 1965, my marriage was in very poor shape. And my, my father had died the year before drunk, still drinking. He left my mother, who by this time had gone out of her mind. My mother died two years later in a mental institution in Baltimore. This is a family disease. This is a family disease. My mother just could not cope any longer. And she withdrew so much into herself that by the time my father had died, she was like a little child because she just couldn't face it anymore. This is how the disease affected my mother. My mother was a victim of alcoholism. It took me a long time in this program to realize how this disease affected my children. But I'll tell you about that. By 1968, I was in deep trouble. I was an absolute stone drunk. Daily drinker, periodic drunk. I had tried to get several jobs. I'd always quit them because they interfered with my drinking. I'd have to go to work at 5 o'clock, and you couldn't get me out of the house at 5 o'clock unless you had a wheelbarrow. So I'd have to quit these jobs. This is when I was going to go to school, and I'd have to quit that because when you're taking sewing lessons in night classes with all the nice ladies in Baltimore and you're half drunk, it just doesn't work out. So I had to quit that, and I was always trying something and quitting it and trying different brands and quitting them. And people were talking to me about my drinking. They were telling me to do this and do that and do this and do that. And I tried it all. I really did. I didn't want to be a drunk. I wanted to be a social drinker. I tried all my life to be one. By 1968, I was in deep trouble. I don't know where I heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I called the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Intergroup in Baltimore, and they told me where there was an AA meeting. And I went to that AA meeting. I went to a few AA meetings. I never stopped drinking. I'd always have a couple of belts before I'd go so I could stand it. Because you people were definitely alcoholics. No doubt about it in my mind. But I wasn't. See, I wasn't. I, I could not get honest about my drinking. And I know today, as I look back on it, I guess I just wasn't ready to give up the only thing I had left in my life, 
and that was my bottle, and you wanted to take it away from me. So in 1968, after going to a few meetings, and the only story I remember was a big construction worker uh, who stood up and said, my name's Bill and I'm an Alki, and that turned me right off there. And he talked about carrying a half pint in each boot when he went to work, and I said, I don't do that. I didn't even wear boots. <laughs> but I used to go around in the cape, and I wasn't a nurse. <laughs> I have two six-packs under the cape. So I did that, but I couldn't relate to Bill Yankee, who had the half-pint in the boot. Joanne had her booze. always had my booze. I don't know if you do it around here, but years ago in Baltimore, when it, we lived in a row, I lived in a row house, and all the neighbors had a bunch of kids, and I had a bunch of kids. You know how the girls get together for, to get together for coffee clashes in the morning, and everybody'd have their coffee, and guess what I'd have? My beer. You know, there was a great message there for me, but I didn't, you know, didn't make any difference to me. I thought I was all right. I was beginning to lose nice friends. I had nice friends, nice gals that, that liked me, that kind of moved away from me. It got so my husband would not take me out. We didn't go any place together. He went his way and I went mine. We had lost our friends because they didn't want to be around Joanne. You're so nice, Joanne, if only you didn't drink so much. And when they said that, I would get as far away from them as possible because from that moment on, they were my enemy. They were my enemy, and it got so everybody was my enemy. And so all I had was my bottle. So in 1968, after coming around this program for a very short time, and I guess I thought I wasn't that bad, or maybe I thought I was too good. I don't know what I thought. I went back out into the world, and I was going to do it myself. I'll, I'll control it. I decided to get a job. That'll do it. I got the only job I could get, and that was as a night shift waitress. I worked 11 to 7 in a little restaurant. Didn't serve alcohol. And that, my friends, is an alcoholic's dream come true. Because then Joanne could put whiskey in the Coke, gin in the orange juice, get my two six-packs under my cape at 7 in the morning. I could drink all the time. And I did. I have a disease that is progressive. And I was getting sicker and sicker. At that little restaurant I worked in, I was a drunk. The girl I worked with was a drunk. The cook was a drunk. And everybody that came in between 12 and 5 were drunk. <laughs> and we used to have state troopers come in just to watch the show. <laughs> when they were on the night shift, they'd say, let's go down to Little Chef. Because they knew they could have a few laughs because it was just craziness all the time. The restaurant I worked in was right across from a bar. And we would send runners out. Every so often, you could always tell the cook, he was neat. He was a black fella, and he wore the white... And you'd see this white flash flashing across the street. That was Charlie. Charlie was getting his bottle. But you know, I went four years. And Joanne, who had come here in 1968 with all those nevers, I lost them all. I lost them all. And Joanne, who wasn't that bad, got that bad. <coughs> Marriage broke up. Oldest son ready to leave. I was a fallen down drunk. I just couldn't stand up. And I was getting drunker faster, on less booze. And I was getting sicker and sicker. And I was losing everything I had in this world. My children had lost their respect for me. I wasn't taking care of them. They were taking care of me. I had six accidents with the same car the last two years of my drinking. That's the car I drove day A. And I remember I went to a meeting one night. Two guys followed me out and... As I started getting my car, they walked over and looked at it all around, and they said, Yeah, Joanne, you belong. <laughs> that car used to go down the road kind of sideways. It had been in a gutter so many times. So on my last drunk, it started on my birthday. I had quit again. I was always quitting. I would always quit when the pressure was on and when, uh, or I was going to get my brains blown out or get killed because that's what it had gotten to be between my husband and I. He was going to kill me or I was going to kill him and the children were always in between. 
this is what they heard, this is what they saw, this is what they grew up with. Now my last drunk, it started out with a glass of wine about that big. And one of the first things I believed when I came to this program is the first drink will get you drunk. Because I had stopped drinking again. And I always thought when I first came around here it was two months, but I think it was two weeks. It just seemed like two months. <laughs> it was a very short time. But anyway, I wasn't drinking. My husband came back and my birthday had, had come along. So he told me he'd take me out to dinner. We went to a very nice restaurant. Now for a gal who uh, used to drink on Arbor Day and uh, Flag Day and Bastille Day and Tuesday and every other day, you know what's going to happen on my birthday. So we went to this nice restaurant. My husband said to me, would you like a drink before dinner? I thought he'd never ask. <laughs> and I'd been on beer by then, whiskey and gin too, but I decided I'd have wine because I didn't like wine. I never drank wine again after that first drunk. I didn't like wine. And I said, I'll have a small glass of wine. And I will never forget it. That waitress brought me the smallest glass of wine I have ever seen in my life. It looked like an eye wash cup, if anybody here remembers it. That big. So I had that small glass of wine, and then I said, I, I think I'll have another. And I did. Uh, and I was always the kind that if you gave me a Manhattan before dinner and then I had two, then I'd have three. And you could forget dinner, pal, because it would usually be a fight or I would be so drunk and so obnoxious, nobody would want to eat dinner. So I had a second glass of wine and I said, I think I'll have another. And he said, I think you won't. But I'm an alcoholic, say. And I had my glass of wine. And we had a fight and there was no dinner. But Joanne got her wine. Joanne got her wine. Just like I always got what I wanted, my way. It almost killed me. Because from then on, I was on wine. And that was a four-month drunk that went from October 23rd, 1971, until February 22nd, which was my last drunk from that little glass of wine. And on that last drunk, I was thrown out of a bar, and I was too drunk to walk. I had to crawl out. I had to crawl out, because I couldn't walk. And I crawled out of that bar to my car. I always drove when I was drunk, because I couldn't walk. <laughs> Got to my car, and some kind gentleman helped me. And I conned him into getting me a six-pack of beer, because I needed a drink. You see, I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk, but I needed a drink. I really needed a drink. I went home in a blackout, one of many, many blackouts. I always had blackouts. I had blackouts in the very beginning of my drinking. Went home in a blackout, <clears throat> and in that blackout I tried to kill my husband with a butcher knife, because he was there and he was the problem. See? Everybody was the problem to join except me and alcohol. Now, I don't remember doing that. I was told about that. But I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember waking up the next morning and I was alone. I was alone. And I was scared to death because I knew I'd done something and I didn't know what I did. And I had awakened many, many times like that. I awakened in that bed, couldn't figure out how I got there, where I'd been. And by the way, I'd lost that job, lost my night shift waitress job. <coughs> couldn't hold it. I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't face people anymore. Because I'd go to work and I'd be half drunk and I'd get drunker and I'd work in a blackout and I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was in AA three months before I found out I'd quit that job. I thought I was fired. So I got up that morning and I was alone and I was scared. My children were going to be taken away from me and put in a foster home. My hus husband had threatened that, and I knew it was happening. I knew I was going to be on the street. And for a split second in my life, I saw two roads before me. Either I'd do something about my drinking or I was doomed. And so it just happened by coincidence, 
And anybody that's been in AA a while knows what those coincidences are in our lives. But I thought it was a coincidence. And it just happened by coincidence that little gal I told you about that I worked with had come to this program earlier. In the last months of my drinking, she was getting sober when I was getting sicker. And she used to come in from these meetings and she'd be there and I'd come in about 11.20. I was always late and I was always sick or hung over or dying on my feet or I needed a drink. And there she'd be. She'd just come in from these meetings and she'd be smiling. And she wasn't sick and run into the bathroom like I was. And she felt good. And she told me she had come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she told me she had come because she got drunk and... Uh, I knew she had gotten drunk because I was a runner. If I had wheels, I'd get her the booze, and I got her the booze that day of her last drunk, and she ended up at Spring Grove, which is a mental hospital. And she said, I went to AA because uh, the rug came up to get me. And I said, well, if the rug ever comes up to get me, I'll go to AA. So I was a smart drunk. So I thought of that girl that morning, and I called her up, and I asked her to help me. I wasn't laughing and I wasn't smart. I was a mass of fear. I was scared to death. I was hopeless. I knew I was hopeless and helpless. And she took me with a guy named Charlie B to my first meeting at City Hospital. And it was at that first meeting a woman chairman, lady alcoholic, beautiful lady, red hair, well-dressed, big smile on her face. That I remember. That's what I remember. She said she was a drunk. And she was sober today. That's all I remember about that meeting. And then they kept taking me to these meetings and taking me to these meetings. Second meeting I went to, a fellow came up to me and said, Joanne, you don't have to be a drunk. And I said, yes, I do. You don't know. You don't understand. You don't know what I go through. He said, yeah, well, I do. Sit down. Come on. <laughs> Another guy said to me, Joanne, your last drunk's the best drunk you'll ever have. That one kept me sober for a week. That one scared me good. If that was the best drunk. They told me about the disease of alcoholism. I didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism. I knew I was a drunk. I knew nothing about the disease. They told me it was physical, mental, and spiritual. They told me another thing I never knew. They told me that alcohol was a drug, and I was a drug addict. I never, never thought of alcohol as a drug. I had to start thinking about these things. They gave this program to me very simply. They said, Joanne, if you can stay away from one drink, one day at a time, you can work this program. And that's what I did. I didn't take one drink, one day at a time, and I white-knuckled it that first hundred days because I wanted to drink. And when I used to say, do what makes you comfortable, it's a good thing I didn't. Because <laughs> I would have gone, I've got a drink. But I heard these simple messages. I was brought to meeting after meeting after meeting. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. I was being torn between these two things. My husband came back. He was still drinking, going to bars, did not know anything about the disease of alcoholism, and I didn't know how to explain it to him because I didn't either. Somewhere very early in my sobriety, because I didn't come to A and just automatically surrender, and I didn't come to A and turn into uh, Snow White. Uh, after I came to A and stopped drinking, I still wanted to kill him. Uh, that didn't just go away. It took a lot of hard work, a lot of prayers. I still was very angry, very bitter, very resentful. I really felt sorry for myself now. Why me? Why not that bone? I was still very fearful. I was scared to death. I was scared to get drunk and I was scared to get sober. Because I didn't know what sobriety was. I knew nothing about sobriety. All my life I had been around booze. Drinking people. Anybody that didn't drink, I did not stay around very long. They were of little interest to me. And in those early days and weeks and months, when I was going to meetings, my husband continued to drink. He wanted me to go to bars. 
I went. I couldn't hack it. Because I was a drunk. I'd get in that bar and the hair in the back of my neck would stand right on end. I'd feel like I was home. And that bartender would come up to me and look at me with that look on his face that says, what do you have? I, had, I couldn't do it. I tried to explain to him about alcoholism. And this, I believe, was my surrender time because I didn't surrender when I first came. It took me a while to accept my alcoholism. I remember... I was trying to explain to him about alcoholism. He did not understand about it. He could not forgive and he couldn't forget. And I realize now he couldn't help that. The kids didn't understand. They didn't know what was happening. I hadn't had a drink in a number of weeks. Maybe it was a couple of months. I really don't know. But I remember trying to explain. They didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to hear it. I went out in the backyard. I have a picnic table out there. That's where my surrender was at that picnic table. I sat out there by myself. I've been sober a couple of months probably. And I sat there and I cried like my heart would break because I felt like it was a death. You see, I knew, I knew then that that life I had lived was over, that a door was closing forever. And I knew that I had to come to these meetings. And I had to get with you people. And I had to listen to you. And that door on my life of 41 years was over. And it was like a death. It really was. And that to me, I know today, was a surrender. And I still have to do that many times to continue that surrender that happened there. And then I knew that no matter what he did, no matter what the children did, no matter what happened in my life, that I had to get to this program. And so I did. I came to meetings when all kinds of things were happening in my home. My husband didn't like me drunk, and he didn't like me sober. And I understand that today. This is a family disease. My family was sick when I got here. And I couldn't help them until I got sober myself. I did begin to get sober in this program, but I wanted things to change, and they didn't change. I wanted him to change. I wanted those kids to straighten up. They were a mess. Kids on drugs and kids on booze and boys being suspended from school and girls running around. and You know, I sobered up and looked around, and I, my God, it was, it was devastating. Everybody was a basket case. But I got a sponsor, and I joined a group, and I started doing what I was told. They said, stick with the winners, Joanne. And I did. It was hard, too, because uh, I used to like what the losers used to say. <laughs> when I first came around, you know, like, you don't have to work the steps. Don't worry about it. You can do anything you want, Joanne. I said, really? Oh, I really love that one. I found out I couldn't. So I started sticking with the winners. I got a sponsor. She's a wonderful lady, a beautiful lady. I could relate to her because she was the kind of drunk I was. She was a fallen down drunk. But she was beautiful. Stood in her feet, sparkling her eyes, self-respect, felt good about herself. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. I wanted what she had. I joined a group in Wise Avenue, called the Wise Avenue Group in Dundalk, Maryland, even though it's quite far from where I live because there were tough people there, tough drunks and tough AAs, and they laid it on me, whether I liked it or not. They told me the truth. And I used to cry and complain and whine and whine. And my sponsors say, Joanne, you better grow up or get drunk. And I knew what she was telling me. She was telling me I better work the fourth step because I didn't like the fourth step. I worked the first three steps like a guy I heard at a Parkville meeting say he worked them. I can't, he can, let him. That's the way I worked the first three steps. I can't help myself. You people can. This program can. Some kind of God can, and I'm going to let you. But I said, I'm not working the fourth step. Because I'm an Irish Catholic, and I always had to go to confession, and I hate it. I hated it, and I hate it. <laughs> Raising that church and indoctrinated, and boy, I you go to confession, go to mass, and all this, and I did. I never ate meat on Friday. 
Went to Mass every Sunday. Top CCD. About three sheets to the wind. Never used birth control. Had eight kids. Now the biggest drunk in the parish. Couldn't wait for Mass to be over so I could go home and drink. So I, when I got this program, they said, look at your spiritual values, and I did, and I didn't have any. I didn't have any. I had all that book learning that I never used. Never used. Had no spirituality. So my sponsor said, Joanne, there is a program of recovery here called the 12 Steps. She told me to read those steps every day. She said, don't memorize them. Just read them. And someday you will want to apply them to your life. And that day came for me because I wanted things to change. And UAA said to me, Joanne, things will not change till you change. And so I had to get into the steps. I got into the fourth step. I had to get honest with Joanne. Sober. <coughs> Terrible. That was very painful. It was very painful. And they said to me, Joanne, if it isn't painful, it isn't the fourth step. It's something else. I had to look at Joanne, sober. I had to look at myself, my self-pity, my resentment, my hatred, my blaming others, my fears, my pride. And I found out the problem was Joanne. You see, all my life I thought it was everybody around me, and it was me. I took the fifth step with my sponsor. I got rid of the garbage of my past, of all the things I had done that I was ashamed of, that I thought nobody else did. She said, Joanne, you're not that good at being that bad. I took the other part of the fifth step about the character defects with a hippie priest. I'll never forget him. He wore beads. He wore a cutoff and he rode a bicycle around. He had long hair. And he was in the parish down the street from me, and he was going to be there one week. And then he was going to be gone and never seen or heard from again. And so I took the fifth step with him. And he did go and was never seen or heard from again. It was a great freedom for me and a great awareness for me to finally see it was me. And you know, the thing that the fourth step did for me and still does through the tenth step is that I'm always aware that when something's wrong, it's something wrong with me. That's a great awareness for me because I used to think when something was wrong, there was something wrong with you. So I got into the sixth and seventh step because by this time I had found God as I understand him today. It wasn't that little God that God I had as that little Irish Catholic girl because I had a God of fear. I felt guilty all the time. I used to feel, feel guilty about things I hadn't even done yet. I was thinking of them now. I, I kind of threw all that out because this is the way I had to do it when I started from zero in this program and I began to look for God in this program and I found him in the people because that's where he is I found him in myself because that's where he is I heard a guy in AA say one night that nobody walks through the doors of AA alone nobody they might think they do but they don't and that is the God that I understand. The God that took me and picked me up off the floor where I was laying and brought me to this program and helped me to stand on my feet and begin to live my life. Because when I came to this program, I was 41 years old and I thought my life was over. Over. I used to sit in the rooms and wonder what the heck am I going to do if I can't drink? How am I going to stand it? I thought it was the end. And it was the beginning. A beginning of a life. I have never been the same since the day I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got into this program. I worked these steps as best I could. I still do. Every day. By the time I was two years in this program, I had to get honest about a lot of other things in my life besides my drinking. I had to get honest about my marriage. My husband deserved to be happy in his own way. I had to learn to live and let live. And I deserved to be happy in mine. That was neat. That was a neat thing that I could live my life. 
My husband and I split up when I was two years sober after 26 years of marriage. But it was a good decision because things worked out very well for him and for me. Because you see this, as I was getting sober and he was getting drunker, the children were getting sicker. They began hating him because they were afraid he was going to get me drunk. And I guess so they hated him so it was terrible. And so we split up and when he left, I had five children left in the family. The second son had left when I was about a year sober after fighting with his father when his father was drunk. And my son Tim, who was the oldest at home at that time, was 19 years old. He is an alcoholic and a drug addict. And he was doing his thing. And I was taking care of him. He was taking drugs and drinking booze. And lost his job. Wrecked his car. Lost his license. He used to sleep up in his room on a mattress thrown on the floor. He was all dirty. He was a mess. He was a bum. And through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the people in this program said to me, Joanne, you can carry the message, but you can't carry a drunk. Tim, he had to leave. I told him he was an alcoholic, and if he wanted help, I would help him. I would take him where he could get help. So Tim left. I put him out in the street. And he lived in the street for a year. I was three years sober at that time. And Tim lived in the street for a year. He finally ended up sleeping under trucks, got pneumonia, sniffing gas out of gas tanks. That's how desperate Tim had become. And I'd see him every so often walking down the street, and I thought he was starving to death. He looked like he was. But you know, when I put Tim out of my house, I knew through this program that I had to accept that he would ask for help or he would die. I put Tim in the hands of God. And Tim's still in the hands of God. Because on my fourth anniversary, after Tim had been out in the street for a year, there was a knock on the door, and there he was. He had long hair with little dirt balls in it. He had on an old army coat. And he asked if he could go to a meeting. And so Joe and I took Tim to uh, my anniversary that night, and we turned him over to some guys in AA. And Tim now has three years and three months of sobriety through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Tim got married last December. We went to the wedding, and he wore a white tuxedo. I'm going to tell you, he is a beautiful child. And he's 24 years old. My sister also came to this program after I came in. And uh, she has uh, remained sober through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a beautiful program. It works for everybody. My children are getting better. I had to begin bringing this program home to them as best I could. And I don't mean that I brought it home and said everybody's going to straighten up now because I knew what would happen if I did that. But I tried to practice the principles in all my affairs and that means that I had to begin practicing the principles at home. I had to start being more loving and tolerant. I began to try to communicate with my children. And today my children and I can talk to each other. I never did that before. I often tell the story to kind of show how my family was. The story of my daughter Joelle and I took her to she was going to college, by the way. She's my fifth child and the only one that, that got to college. She was going to college and I took her in one morning and I let her out and as she got out of the door, it just hit me in my head something a fellow that's always saying to me in AA and I thought I'll say it to her and I said, Joellen, did anybody tell you today they loved you? And she stopped and looked at me and she said, no. And I said, well, I love you. And the tears came down her cheeks. And it hit me that, that they didn't know I loved them. They just didn't know. Because we didn't communicate. Because in alcoholism, the family doesn't communicate. So I communicate today as best I can with my children. I'm not saying that they're not, um, uh, they're, they're perfect children or anything like that. They're not. They're regular, normal kids and they do all kinds of things. 
but that is their life and their privilege, but they're getting better, and I'm getting better. There was a couple, there was so much I wanted to tell you, and I told Joe that I was writing it down, and I did, and then I forgot to bring it. <laughs> News that has happened to me. Last April, I had two new grandchildren. I had a little boy, a little grandson, and a little granddaughter. And I was allowed to go to the hospital and be there. And I am welcome in those homes to see my grandchildren. And the babies are brought to my home every week to see their grandmother. And that's a very wonderful thing for me. Because eight years ago, my first grandchild was born. And I didn't get to see him because I went to the hospital when she had him and I was drunk and I was obnoxious. So I didn't get to see that little boy in his early years. You know, but today I can see my grandchildren. I'd also like to share with you that on July 4th, Joe and I are going to be married. My fiance Joe is in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is where I met him. Um, and we're going to uh, try to work this program together and say we can do together what I cannot do alone. So I'm going to start a new life there. Through this program, I have gone back to school, gone to college. You know, many, many things have happened to me. I started out, my first three months I couldn't work because I was too scared and too sick. I got a job as a waitress, the only job I could get, and I worked up a little better and got a little better job. And I've gotten a little better job every time I get a job. So things always get better for me. You know, I haven't gotten everything I wanted, because some of the things I wanted when I first came around here probably would have killed me. I wanted some strange things. There's a story in the big book called Freedom from Bondage. It's written by a woman alcoholic who came to this program with a lot of hate and a lot of resentment. And as a matter of fact, in that story, she tells how she got rid of her resentments by praying for those she hated. That is the way I got rid of mine. A man, after an AA meeting, told me one night, because I said, I've got these resentments, and they're just this big in my stomach and have been for years, and I don't know what to do about them. And he said, Joanne, pray that only good things happen to that person you hate. And I said, I'd like to pray that a truck runs over. <laughs> and he said, I know, but don't. Pray that good things happen to him. And you know, I use that prayer, and that prayer works. And I don't know if good things happen to him, but they sure happen to me. But in this story called Freedom from Bondage, which is in the big book, this is what this lady alcoholic talks about praying for those she hated. The last line she wrote, and I wish I had written it because it sure applies to me and I love it. She says, I've gotten everything I needed in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need, I get. And when I get what I need, I find it was just what I wanted all the time. I've gotten everything I needed in this program. I have to work those steps every day. I have to work the 10th step and the 11th step and the 12th step every day. I have to stay honest. There's a fellow that used to be in my group named Eddie who always says, don't forget where you came from, bum. And when he used to say that, I'd get a big twist in my stomach and I'd really get mad. But he's right. I better not forget where I came from. I can go back there very, very fast. I have to stay honest with myself. I have to know every day that if there's something happening inside me, there's something wrong with me. I use the 11th step, I pray a lot. I'm not ashamed to say I pray. I have a great dependence upon God as I understand Him. I pray all the time. I start my day with my prayers, and they're very simple prayers, they're AA prayers. And I end them with prayers, and I use them during the day. The 12th step, I have to practice these principles in all my affairs. I have to carry this message as best I can. And I have had a spiritual awakening because of these 12 steps. The 12 promises have been given to me. And all I was promised when I came here was that if I wouldn't take a drink, I wouldn't get drunk. 
And if I used those 12 steps, my life would change. And it has. And I know it will continue to change. I was talking to somebody before the meeting who had heard me speak somewhere else, and I said, well, my drunkalog's the same, but my sobriety story changes and changes. And it better change, or else I'm in trouble. I don't know how long I've talked. It's probably been an hour. I feel like it's been an hour. You know, there's a, a book called Sobriety Without End when it talks about practicing the principles and all our fears, and I love it, and I try to use it. Although sometimes I don't. Sometimes I slip off this program, but I don't take a drink, and I get back on the program. The story in Sobriety Without End tells about the violinist who is asked how important is practice. And he says, I'll tell you how important practice is. If I don't practice one day, I know it. And if I don't practice two days, my family knows it. And if I don't practice three days, everybody knows it. And I kind of look at this program that way, that I must practice it in all my affairs. Or I'll know it, and my family will know it. Pretty soon everybody will know it. I want to thank the committee for asking me here to speak. I'm very grateful to be here and share with you my story and my hope for any new person here to just keep coming back and go to those meetings, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth and listen. And that's what I was told. They said, Joanne, sit down. You don't know anything. If you did, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> I used to hate hearing those things. They helped me. I used to go home and I'd be cursing inside thinking terrible things, but you know, I found that all the people that I was always trying to avoid and didn't like in AA, now that I know that they are the ones that helped me the most, and they are my dearest friends today. They were the winners. They are the winners. They're the ones that gave me the program, the program, the 12 steps. I'd like to end this meeting with a little prayer I read, and it's my prayer. Thank you, God for all the things you've given me, the things you have taken away from me, and for all the things you've left me. Thank you. <laughs>